Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Luke, where I'll be reading chapter 9, verses 37 through 50. The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus had, de- had done, he said to his disciples, Listen carefully to what I am about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them, so they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. An argument started among the disciples as to which one of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. Master, said John, We saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning for your spirit to move in us as we receive your word. Help us to clearly see your will and give us the strength we need to live into that will. Be with me, a dying man, as I preach to dying men and women. Amen. Well, we are continuing our series on Luke. Pastor Eric is away uh, this week, but he preached last week on the Transfiguration, an important passage in Scripture, and especially so in the Gospel of Luke. It marks a changing point in Jesus' ministry, but it also reveals who Christ is to the disciples. They had been traveling with Jesus for a few years up to this point and had seen firsthand his ministry and his teachings, but it was only just beginning to click with them that Jesus was much more than just a great rabbi. Luke 8 marks the beginning of this, perhaps, with the disciples proclaiming that even the winds obey him, as Jesus calmed the storm. During this time, Jesus had been prepping them for ministry, but what they failed to see was that he was preparing them for ministry after he leaves. This passage today points out that the disciples actually failed in many ways, even after being trained and discipled by Christ directly. Here again, then, what the passage says, starting in verse 37. The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met them. Just then, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, because he's my only child. A spirit seizes him. Suddenly, he shrieks, and it throws him into convulsions until he foams at the mouth. Severely bruising him, it scarcely ever leaves him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. So Jesus has just gone through this intense event on the top of the mountain, 
where he was engaged with Moses and Elijah, culminating with God the Father, speaking audibly from heaven, declaring Jesus to be his son, and making it very clear that we should all listen to him. So Jesus goes from that experience right back to everyday life with the people. Picture this, right? As soon as he gets down the mountain, uh, the people immediately need him and begin making requests. For any of you who have ever had some major spiritual experience on a retreat or something, perhaps you can identify with that moment a bit. Because at some point, that experience ends, and you enter back into the normal rhythms of life. I think that's a normal feeling, but I also think it's important to recognize that you're not meant to stay on that mountaintop. Those experiences, as great as they are, and I can only imagine what what Jesus, Peter, John, and James were all going through at that point, but as great as those experiences are, they're ultimately meant to shape us for the calling in your life. We don't experience these things simply so that we feel good spiritually, but that we take that experience as motivation and empowerment to live in the way God has called us to live, which is to reflect the transforming power of the gospel for all to see. Jesus does exactly that in going back down the mountain and interacting with the people there. That was his ministry, and the transfiguration was a form of anointing on his ministry, as Pastor Eric talked about last week. He went back into his life. The disciples, however, seem to have not done that. Uh, A man comes before Jesus, pleading with him to heal his son from what appears to be some form of epilepsy caused from demon possession. If you've ever known someone with epilepsy, you know how scary it can get. Uh, And this father went to the disciples for help, but they didn't heal the boy. The father is desperate that this is his only son, meaning his only heir. The hope of a future is quickly fading away for him. Some of us may be well acquainted with this feeling, that loss of hope for the future. Our mountaintop experiences, if left alone, do not prepare us to engage the darkness and the hopelessness we are called to confront in our world. By mountaintop experience, I'm not referring to a literal experience on top of a mountain, uh, because that was only a few disciples here uh, in this passage. The rest of the disciples, they had been given authority by Jesus to do ministry, to cast out demons, earlier in uh, chapter 9. They had experienced the feeding of the 5,000, and they were also there when Peter declared Jesus to be the Christ. Clearly, they had gone through some stuff with Jesus. But that is what makes this event so interesting. Why did the father say they didn't heal his son? In fact, the man says they they couldn't do it. But why on earth not? Like I said, they, they were just given the authority to cast out demons at the beginning of this chapter. Jesus seems to think it was a lack of belief from his disciples. In verse 41, calling them a perverse generation. Jesus does not act like the cute, fluffy Jesus that we're used to seeing. He's mad and he's calling out his disciples. Jesus asks how long he has to endure their unbelief and their wickedness. Something startling coming from Jesus. We get it though, I think at least you know most of us do. We've all had to endure someone and their failures, even repeated ones. Someone who lies about everything or continues to take advantage of you, claiming, you know, this time it'll be different. Uh, The frustration for Jesus here is that they have been properly equipped and trained, uh, and they've even heard the truth about who he is, and yet they fail to put it all together, much to the detriment of this poor father. His son is not well, and the people who should have been able to handle it couldn't. This unbelief characterized by Jesus as perverse 
leads Jesus to explain again to his disciples what is soon going to take place. Looking again, starting at verse 43. And they were all astonished at the greatness of God. While everyone was amazed at all the things he was doing, he told his disciples, Let these words sink in. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand the statement. It was concealed from them so that they could not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. Jesus sort of ruins the party here, you know? He just healed this man's son, uh, and everyone is amazed, but Jesus is focused on something else. Yes, he came to heal, at least in part, but he goes back to the disciples' failure to drive out the demon in the first place. Their unbelief prevented them from casting out the demon. Their failure to exercise the authority that Jesus had given them underscores their inability to recognize who Jesus really is, even though they've rightly proclaimed him as the Messiah. Because the disciples and others failed to see Jesus for who he truly is, or at least to understand what it means for him to be the Christ, is the reason Jesus will be betrayed into the hands of men. Someone will betray him because they don't fully recognize him. The hands of men ready to receive Jesus in order to kill him, and a people ready to accept his judgment, all because they don't know who Jesus is. The passage tells us that the disciples don't understand what Jesus means, and the Spirit is keeping them from understanding. Some may wonder why that is, and there could be several reasons, but I think all good theories essentially summarize it as simply not being the time for the disciples to know. My conclusion would be that them knowing now would accelerate the process of Jesus ultimately being handed over, but Jesus obviously still has work to do. Uh, Notice in the passage that Jesus is giving them information, revealing some pretty major stuff. And what is their reaction to all that? It's to stay silent. If a friend told you that soon they were going to be arrested, would you respond with silence? Would you have no questions to ask? I assume you'd have something to ask them. You'd want to know what's going on. So here then is another failure. Failure to understand, yes, but a failure to ask questions, which is perhaps even more important. And I think there's a tendency to undervalue the role of questions in our faith. And I think this is especially true in our kids. Uh, I have two stories to illustrate this. The first is that, you know, we had a student in our youth group uh, that had a lot of questions. They challenged things that I would say, uh, and they would never just accept whatever it was that I was teaching. I think this sort of behavior worries many, especially parents who are concerned for their children's spiritual well-being. You know, every year we have seniors graduating, and you know, you always wonder and and hope and pray for, uh, you know, as they go through their young adulthood, as they're experiencing this new level of freedom, that they would continue to pursue Christ in all that they do. But you never really know. Uh, But you know, every year I feel like I have a few students that I feel pretty confident in. You know, that they will not spiritually flounder in college. Uh, And that student that asked all these questions, that is one that I feel really confident in. And why is that? It's because they ask questions. They engage with what they were being taught. Uh, You know, those who don't ask questions, life is going to throw them curveballs. How will they respond when something seems to challenge their beliefs? Or maybe they simply accept what the world teaches them about life. They don't critically engage with that either. As long as you spoke with authority, you know, they'll just sort of accept it wholesale. No questions asked. And this can even lead to logical inconsistencies because they're not trying to reconcile anything. 
you know, I remember a study being done that showed a bunch of students at a major university claimed to be a Christian, but more than half believed that Jesus had sinned in his life, and even more believed that Jesus was not the only way to heaven. You know, we need to ask questions. We need to engage with our faith. The other story is about a little girl, who I want to say was probably about 10 at the time. She grew up in a really strong Christian family, and she was attending this church family camp. And I was told that uh, she was talking to a counselor and asking questions about what it meant to really follow Jesus. And after a lengthy discussion, this little girl said, I'm not sure that I'm ready to follow Jesus. It seems like I'd have to give up a lot. You know, and like, at its face, right, like, that is maybe worrisome. Like, oh no, like my kid's rejecting Christ. And, you know, but to me it indicates somebody who is seriously considering the cost of what it means to follow Christ. They weren't simply going to claim to be a follower of Christ unless they knew what it meant to be one and then were going to commit to it. Uh, update, she is uh, living faithfully for the Lord now, probably a decade later. Uh, and so, you know, I do think that that was a, a good sign for her future uh, you know, faith development. But the disciples, despite having Jesus right in front of them and willingly telling them information, they don't even ask. They didn't seek to understand, which matters, I think, even if the Spirit would have prevented them from being able to do so. Our next passage is probably a familiar one to most of you. An argument started among them about who was the greatest of them. But Jesus, knowing their inner thoughts, took a little child and had him stand next to him. He told them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes him who sent me. For whoever is least among you, this one is great. The disciples here are arguing about who is the greatest. Perhaps they're feeling insecure because of their recent failings, or maybe in recognizing Jesus' great power, they want to position themselves as his right-hand man. Whatever the reasons, they fundamentally misunderstand Jesus' power and his mission in the world. They're so used to power being used to climb up the ranks of society or to gather resources for themselves or the powerful. Jesus uses a, a, a child to demonstrate what the kingdom is really about. In the world, might is right, but in the kingdom of heaven, the dynamics shift. Everyone makes themselves to be one of the least of these, seeing everyone else as worthy of serving. Power is used to further solidify one's own standing in the world, but with Jesus, it is merely a tool for love. Jesus only recently had explained that he was going to lay down his life for the people, but the disciples aren't getting it. They're still thinking about what power can get them. Jesus uses a child to illustrate his point, and he dignifies the child in the process. He gives the child standing simply by standing next to the child. You must become like this child in order to receive the kingdom of heaven, Scripture tells us elsewhere. By serving the least of these, you are serving God himself. There's a lot more that can be said here, and we'll get to some of it in a little bit. But you know, I think there's another element here that ties to the next section. John responded, Master, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow us. Don't stop him, Jesus told him, because whoever is not against you is for you. Part of the issue for the disciples in seeing how important humility is for the kingdom is due to how they understand themselves collectively. They attach themselves to Jesus, and perhaps specifically to this power of his. 
These disciples felt like they were early investors on something special. You know, imagine somebody who bought Apple or Google stock when it first hit the stock market. They were in the know before anyone else, and they had close proximity to the Son of God. So who the heck is this outsider thinking that he can just come in and do ministry in Jesus' name? He doesn't belong with them. He doesn't follow Jesus like they do. Who does he think he is? And that's how it connects to the previous section, I think. These disciples are prideful, and they're ranking themselves within the group, but they're also assuming that anyone outside the group is automatically beneath them. They're putting everyone on a line, and they're sorting through them, declaring some to be lesser than them. Where that child stands on the line, we don't know for sure, but we do know where this mystery exorcist stands, and he doesn't make the cut in their eyes. So Jesus says something startling to them. Don't stop him. He is working for the kingdom, he says. There's no reason to oppose him, because as long as he isn't resisting Jesus in the coming kingdom and ministering in Jesus' name, he is an asset. He might not belong to their particular group, but he clearly has the same goal. Now, you might be remembering this statement a little differently in your head, because there is another passage where Jesus says that whoever is not with him is against him. There are some who pounce on stuff like this, who you know, claim that the Bible contradicts itself. But we're not seeing a contradiction here. We're seeing different things being emphasized. Uh, this is just two chapters later, in Luke eleven twenty three, Jesus has been accused of casting demons out in the name of Beelzebub. Jesus responds that, uh, you know, by, by saying that he is bringing judgment and that only those with him will be saved. There is no neutral ground. So these are two different situations. One is closer to what Paul is talking about uh, when he's talking about those who are preaching to gain prominence or preaching for selfish gain. To which he says, great, Christ is being preached. What do I care? The other uh, is about salvation, where people cannot remain neutral when the final judgment comes. So the point here then is that good things are happening in Jesus' name. Let them be, says Jesus. There are enough enemies actively opposing their efforts as is, and uh, ironically, even from within their own group uh, that they think so highly of. They're worried about Joe Schmo, the exorcist, without even realizing the wolf that Judas is within their own group. So the ultimate point is that pride was causing the disciples to determine who was in and who was out of the kingdom, and by extension, struggling with the concept of serving others, especially those that they felt they ranked above. Well, Jesus is the greatest, and he serves the children, and he welcomes the man working in his name. As we look at this passage, I think it's impossible to ignore all the different ways that the disciples have failed. They're glaring, and I think at least they should be. These are not written, however, for us to look down on them and to lift ourselves up. You know, this passage should instead serve as a mirror, confronting us with our own shortcomings. It certainly did for me as I was studying this passage carefully. In the first section, you know, you've got the disciples failing to use the authority that God gave them. I couldn't help but think of all the times that I have shrunk away from proclaiming the gospel to someone. Someone who needed spiritual healing and me holding the answer back out of some you know, fear of rejection or, or fear of awkwardness. I think of a neighbor that I kept meaning to invite over for dinner for months and never did, and then COVID hit. You know, and that's an example of my own lapse in faithfully carrying out the Great Commission to preach the gospel to everyone. But what about you? The church has been called to be the light unto the world. 
It is to draw out the darkness with Christ who serves as the light, as John 1 teaches us. Are you being faithful in that? Are there issues you see in the world that you don't truly believe can be solved by the proclamation of the gospel? Are the people you think are too lost? You've been given authority and commanded to go and to see people one for Christ. Jesus can conquer all. Jesus has conquered all. There is no divorce too messy, no tragedy too unbearable for the good news of Jesus to redeem and transform. Unfortunately for me, and probably for you, our sins don't end there. In the second section, we see the disciples disengaged out of fear of Jesus. I obviously go to church, I work in ministry, and, and get the awesome privilege of working with our kids here. And I'm currently in seminary, so you know, you'd think that I would be fully engaged, and yet, truthfully, I'm not. It's extremely easy for me to slip into only engaging with my mind and not my heart. I end up pondering the mechanics of theology and neglect reflecting deeply on what I need to do with all that knowledge of theology. Theology is good. I'll I'll even say it's great. I love it. But if it stays in my head, then I'm failing as a steward of the knowledge given to me. It needs to get somewhere. And what about you? Again, are you engaged? If your answer to that would be that you attend church and tithe, then I have to be frank and say, I think maybe you're missing the mark. This is sort of tied back to the last point, but brother, sister, if your engagement with your faith this week is limited just to worship this morning and uh, you know, listening to me preaching to you now, you need more. And you will need more even when Pastor Eric is preaching next week. You need to start asking questions. Start reading or listening outside of Sundays. It's okay to listen to worship music on a Wednesday morning. I promise. But most importantly, we need to start talking with God. Ask the Spirit for guidance, you know, not just in your troubles, but in how you're going to interact with certain people, of how uh, there might be opportunities to be revealed, to share Christ with someone, how to shine light in a dark area you've encountered. I think the second section is related to the third as well, because I think it's sometimes due to our lack of engagement that we fall into our most sinful attitudes. The disciples were ranking themselves, wanting to determine who had the most power, who was closest to Jesus. There are people I think I am better than, people that I don't really want to serve. Because truthfully, I think my time is more valuable than whatever plight they're going through. We have this feeling of superiority over people. And those people might be different from the people that I tend to think down on. You know, we may differ on those. But there's always someone. I remember when I was volunteering at a ministry in Chicago, working with men who were selling themselves out on the streets. And they would tell me that they had to be very careful around a lot of the homeless people. They would be targeted and harassed, sometimes robbed and beaten. It was an exercise of superiority by a group that had been victims of it themselves. Human nature doesn't tell us to take you know, uh, those experiences as victims as a reason to be kind to others. I, I think it activates within us a desire to feel powerful over someone else. We try to get ours over someone else. The gospel, however, says you know, that in the kingdom there is no power structure like this on earth. Uh, nobody should seek to be at the top, but everyone should treat everyone else as though they were at the top. There's a quote by D.A. Carson, uh, someone actually pretty local to us, uh, that has humbled me many times since I first heard it. But he says this, We are all just poor beggars telling other poor beggars 
where to find bread. I am not better than anyone else. But because of Jesus, I do know where to find food. That doesn't make me or you special. It makes Jesus special. And it provides good news to the other poor beggars that we encounter. But we like feeling powerful. We like using our moral uprightness as a measuring tool against others. We like our circles, and we're suspicious of anyone outside of them. We can be legalistic, declaring that intentions are irrelevant and demanding things should only be done as we see fit. I admit, I am guilty of this often. I have my circles, and I can be harsh or dismissive of anyone outside of those circles. Uh, There is a common group of people in our Reformed tradition, uh, what a friend of mine jokingly referred to as the heresy hunters. And, uh, you know, these are people who seem to read every uh, book, tweet, sermon, whatever, by every pastor everywhere, and they will immediately pounce on them as a heretic if things are said, you know, slightly incorrectly. Now, of course, we are called to watch out for false teaching. Uh, you know, and I think that Jesus says, uh, uh, when Jesus talks about this in uh, verse 49 through 50, I think he is assuming that this exorcist is operating out of a good place. Uh, for example, we see in Acts 19, a group who is essentially doing the same thing as this exorcist in our passage, except they seem to be claiming it as some sort of magical power. Uh, and so uh, they are not viewed positively. Uh, the demons actually turn on them and everything. But uh, So I do think that there's, there's something there, like there's a, a differentiation uh, between the two. But, but often I think our pride of being correct it gives us this sense that we have some right to declare people as in or out, or as deserving or undeserving. I wish that I could say I only did this in regards to theology, but I can't. I have strong opinions on dumb things too, and I'll sometimes maintain a posture of gracelessness. What about you? Who are you declaring as being in the wrong? Who do you view as a threat to whatever social position you think you have? Who are we ostracizing? We are sinners. We are deficient in all respects. Even where we are gifted, we are still far from perfect. And I think we tend to manipulate our gifts for selfish gain instead of in proclaiming the gospel. I read a passage like this and I'm I'm confronted with just how broken and how flawed I am, how sinful and rebellious. I fail in significant ways as a husband, as a father, as a son, friend, as the youth director here, as a student. Not one of those areas am I quote-unquote there. So a passage like this, I think it can beat you down. The ironic thing, though, is that you know, we read something like this and we think to ourselves, well, I, I just need to try harder. You know, and certainly, I think, as Dallas Willard famously said, you know, grace is not opposed to effort. You know, we should be seeking to lean into the grace uh, that, that Jesus offers us as believers, and we should seek to be more like Christ. I th- you know, that's a major calling in Scripture. But man, I don't know about you, but I've been trying hard ever since I became a Christian. And for every step I seem to take on this path to righteousness, I only seem to gain a better vantage point, which then reveals sins and failures I didn't even know I had. I know that some of you identify with this. Going back to the very beginning, most of us have had some significant spiritual experience. 
And we feel maybe like we'll never sin again. You know, we come down from that mountain. Uh, but, you know, soon we come down and, and everyday life and our flesh, they get the best of us. And what do we do with this? What does it even mean to be a Christian then? Is there any hope at all? And the answer to that is, of course, yes, there is hope. But there's hope because I think we fail in our understanding of what Jesus has actually done for us. We know that Jesus died for our sins, you know, cleansing us through his righteous blood on the cross. My sins are washed away, but we sin again. And I think we have this idea that, you know, the forgiveness that Jesus offers us, it only resets us to a pure heart. You know, and so we end up falling again, and we, we fall into this cycle of asking for forgiveness and then sort of promising to, to try harder next time. We fail again and again and again. And we grow frustrated with ourselves, and we begin to, to doubt and to wonder and to think that maybe Jesus is frustrated with us too. And maybe now I've crossed the line. I mean, isn't that what Jesus says here in verse 41? How long am I to bear with this wicked generation? But the gospel answers, long enough to die for us. Long enough to die for us and for all eternity. Christian, when you put your faith in Christ, you were not just putting your faith in his ability to cleanse your sins right then. We were naked and ashamed like Adam and Eve in the garden after their sins. But Christ offers us his robes of righteousness. There is no condemnation in Jesus Christ, Paul says in Romans 8. And we fool ourselves into thinking that Jesus accepts us because we try hard. This is a slap in his face because we're likening him to a form of training wheels, ready to shed them as soon as we figure out how to ride a bike on our own. That is not the gospel. Jesus' perfection means that he can cover all sins and failures, and our faith is in him and his goodness, not our own ability to please God. That is good news. I'm not relying on my own efforts. I would be woefully short if I did. But Christ is good enough. So some of you, you, know, you worry about how your actions might affect your salvation. But if you've put your faith in Christ then it is not Christ. It's not about you. It's about Christ. The next time you screw up and you find yourself wondering where you stand before God, stop. Because you're already focused on the wrong person. When you sin, repent and turn to Jesus who is greater than your failures. His perfection is greater than your imperfection. Infinitely so. How long will he bear with us? Isaiah 46, 4 says, and I think this is what Jesus had in mind when he said that. Even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear. I will carry, and I will save. John 10 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. At the final judgment, everyone who has ever lived will stand before the Father and you will be judged. If you are not wearing the robes of righteousness, if Jesus' righteousness has not covered you, you will face hell. 
But Jesus does not simply reset you to pure when you ask for forgiveness. He doesn't reset you. He restores you to the Father relationally. You have put your faith in Christ, which means that your salvation has already been determined. Jesus is enough. And Scripture tells us he rests at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. We can rest in him because he rests. But Jesus rests not on a couch, but on a throne. As a king over the world, he is still actively working on our behalf, interceding for us and restoring us to the Father. He didn't abandon us and he never will. I will be with you always. Yes, even to the end of the age. Matthew 28, 20. My sins are many, but it is a burden that is no match for Jesus. My faith is not as strong as it should be, but my faith is in Christ. Tim Keller uses an analogy that I find helpful, and I I think it offers me a basis on which I can fully rest in Christ and not rest in my own ability. But he says this. He he talks about there being two people at an airport getting ready to board uh, the plane, and, and one of them completely trusts the pilots, uh, and the air crew, and they're not worried about anything. Uh, and the other, however, is a nervous wreck, and he's popping Xanax like Skittles, and he's imagining the absolute worst of all the possibilities. Both get on the plane, and both land safely. And it didn't matter that one trusted in the pilots completely, and that one uh, really was doubting them. They both had enough faith to get on the plane. As we close, I want to clarify that I am not saying that you are free to live a sinful life. If you love Jesus, you will obey him, as John uh, teaches us. What I am saying is that you have a freedom and rest in Christ because your failures are already paid for. We don't have to live in fear that if we mess up big enough or often enough that Christ will abandon us. Like a child with loving parents knows that their parents will always love them, even in their sin and rebellion. We can experience that same level of security as we seek to bring light into the world. As we grow in that love and experience that grace, we naturally grow to align our will with God's, seeking to please Him in all that we do. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your passage here in Luke Lord, just the many ways that it teaches us. And I pray that your word would stay with us, uh, both this morning, but also uh, this week. I pray that you would work in us through it, that we would live into our callings. Lord, that we would be engaged, that we wouldn't shy away from our faith, but that we would seek to, uh, to be servants to others. That we would seek to include others. Father, I know that we will fail. And know that we will continue to slip up. And we are thankful for your Son. And the way that he intercedes for us. And cleanses us from all unrighteousness. I pray that you would help us, through your Holy Spirit, to rest in Christ. And that just incredible work that he does for us. Amen.